China is moving so quickly on this and because they have a system that can dictate this from the top down as opposed to building consensus or it having to come from the private sector as it may in other countries or in the United States, we run the risk of China setting the standards for defining what is green. There is discussion going on over how to develop a common taxonomy, but I think the Chinese may be just one step ahead. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. China has experienced enormous growth and development in the last 25 years, creating challenges in how to reconcile their development with environmental sustainability. In recent years, China's priorities have shifted to increasingly focus on environmental protection and sustainability. Initiatives such as growth of carbon markets, green bond markets, and creation of green taxonomies have been key to China's environmental strategy and are driving innovation in that space, both in China and globally. My first guest is Deborah Lair. She's vice chairman and executive director of the Paulson Institute. Deborah advises Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, on U.S.-China relations and manages the Institute's Green Finance Center. Deborah is a former trade official with the U.S. government, having acted as lead negotiator for China's ascension to the WTO. She advised Hank Paulson when he was the CEO and chairman of Goldman Sachs and helped then-Treasury Secretary Paulson to create and launch the U.S.-China Strategic Economic Dialogue. In addition to that, she served as senior advisor to the chairman and CEO of Merrill Lynch and was a senior managing director at the New York Stock Exchange. She also runs the consultancy Basilina, which focuses on China and the Middle East. My first question for Deborah was whether she could provide us with some insights on what environmental sustainability means in the Chinese context. President Xi has made protection of the environment one of his top three priorities for his second term. And he's done so for several different reasons. One, given China's runaway economic growth over the last 15 to 20 years, there was a focus on job creation, economic opportunity, but many instances, it was at the expense of the environment. And they've now realized that there is a huge environmental challenge that they have to deal with in terms of providing clean air, clean water, and soil that is not polluted. It's not only an economic issue that they have to face now, but it's also a political issue. Many of the protests, in fact, the overwhelming majority of protests that take place in China are because of environmental issues. And so, President Xi recognized that this was an issue that he had to address for the well-being of the people, but also looking at the economy going forward, that this is something they needed to do as an economic imperative. There's a lot of economic opportunity that is coming out of what they're doing. It's creating whole new markets for them in terms of environmental goods and services, but it's also created a platform for President Xi as the head of the largest, the world's largest emitter of carbon to really take on a global platform, or at least this is what he's trying to do with his position on the environment. 
And I understand that there's an estimated $1 trillion needed to meet those environmental goals and that the government is only intending to cover about 15% of that. What approaches are being taken to attract private capital to promote these green initiatives in China? You're exactly right on those statistics. The People's Bank has estimated that to implement their very ambitious agenda in cleaning up the environment, they need about a trillion dollars a year for the foreseeable future. And it can't all be government money. So they've had to resort to very innovative ways to try and attract private capital to cover the costs of this environmental cleanup and the opportunities ahead. They have a very broad-ranging plan that they've looked at. I think it was three years ago they launched green bonds for the first time, and already they're competitive with the United States as the world's largest issuer of green bonds and may actually be the largest in 2019. They have also started very aggressive programs for environmental lending with the banks through their policy banks and providing preferential loan pricing for anything that qualifies as an environmental company. They are trying to develop definitions for green. And while that sounds like a very basic issue, it actually is a very important one because we need standard definitions if investors are going to be confident in the kind of investments that they're making. But even in China, this remains a challenge, even if it can be dictated from the top, they still need to agree on these certain definitions and they're not implemented consistently across the board. When it comes to green bonds, for example, the Chinese have just announced that clean coal will actually not be included as a green investment. That seems very logical. A coal plant shouldn't be considered green. But when they came out with a recent catalog for investments in the environmental area, they actually did include coal as a green investment because their argument is about 60 percent of their energy still comes from coal. So how could they leave it out? China now has one of the largest, if not the largest, carbon trading exchange in the world. How did that come about, and what will be the impact of that globally? A few years ago, China launched seven pilot projects for testing carbon trading, which were very successful. They were done on a regional level, and then announced that their goal was to unite these essentially into one national carbon market. The market was launched a year ago, November last November. And just because it's China and the sheer size, even though it was launched only in one industry covering a little less than 2,000 companies in the power sector, it automatically was the world's largest carbon market. It has not yet begun trading. It has a lot of infrastructure-related issues that need to be addressed. There's no regulatory structure yet. They don't even have a cash market developed. They're experimenting with how to develop a futures market for carbon, but they have very aggressive plans for moving forward. Their hope is to cover the top seven most polluting industries over time on this exchange. One of the reasons that it only started with one industry is because they've had a very difficult time trying to collect the required data necessary to build confidence in trading in these different sectors. And so they're experimenting now with the power sector where it's been a little more transparent in collecting that kind of information. But looking ahead in terms of what China wants to do is they want to begin to export this model. And they recognize that trading is going to be somewhat thin initially on their own exchange. But if they can work with other countries along the Belt and Road and help Southeast Asia help the Middle East and Africa in developing their own carbon markets, they can allow those markets 
and those companies then to start trading on the Chinese exchange. So that creates more opportunity for investment on the Chinese exchange, but it also ensures that Chinese standards dominate the carbon market and those other sectors. That's good in one sense of you can create more innovative financing models because there'll be consistency, but it's challenging for other countries, say the Europeans or the United States or in Scandinavia, others who are developing their own markets, to how do you create these links then for trading into a system that's dominated by Chinese standards. You've mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative. Can you describe what that is and how environmental sustainability fits into it? President Xi announced that this would be his signature foreign policy initiative, and it now covers about three-quarters of the world's population and I believe about 170 countries. It's a very ambitious program for infrastructure development, and China has really taken the lead in doing infrastructure financing. It's estimated there about a trillion dollars in need along the Belt and Road for infrastructure development. And China, through the Asia Infrastructure Bank and other entities, are doing a lot of that lending. It's an area where the United States doesn't really compete. We don't do infrastructure financing. So through this platform, Xi Jinping has announced that he wants to make it green. The Chinese have taken some steps to do this. They launched, and the Paulson Institute was actually a part of this, along with the City of London and some others, voluntary lending principles for financial institutions who would be lending to development and infrastructure building along the Belt and Road. But we're still a long way from getting a consensus agreement about what green development is going to look like. There was a study put out by the United Nations just a few months ago that estimates this will be the largest infrastructure build in history. And the majority of the planning for it and initial development is going to take place over the next, say, five to 10 years. If that infrastructure development is not done in a way that is energy efficient and green, we are going to be stuck with that infrastructure development for probably the next 50 years. Why this is so important? As they've done estimates on what that build could look like, they believe that its carbon footprint would actually be larger than the carbon footprint that exists in China today. So if we don't get this right, we are going to be stuck with a high carbon development going forward. And it doesn't matter what any of the other countries do individually or as a region, whatever steps the United States takes to reduce carbon, whatever steps India or the EU take, If that Belt and Road Initiative isn't done in a low-carbon way, all the rest of the actions will be for naught. So it's really important that China and the countries who are participating are held to a high standard in this development. In our first episode of the Sustainability Leaders podcast, we took a deep dive into the green bond market with BMO's own Dan Creter. Today, we'll hear back from Dan to follow up on his views of China's role in the global green bond space. Issuances of green bonds in China are in excess of $31 billion and represent about 18% of all global green bond issuances. I asked Deborah, what is driving that scale and how fast is that market growing? The green bond market is growing very rapidly, but it still accounts for less than 2% of the overall bond issuances 
internationally. So there's really a long way to grow. What's been very encouraging in the development of the market is we're starting to see what the how the infrastructure is coming along to support that. And I mean, the rating agencies are now developing green indices to judge bonds. It's creating some kind of common understanding of what green is when lending, particularly in certain countries. We're encouraged that the Chinese have taken out coal as one of the areas that they would be lending with green bonds. And for China, they're using it as a way to help the municipalities raise money so that often they have unfunded mandates and it's been very difficult for them. Even though the mayors have been told that they have to do green development, they haven't been able to find the financing for it. And often infrastructure development that is energy efficient is in the short term more expensive. They can get the cost savings over the long term, but the upfront financing for it can be more expensive than just a regular building. And it's up to those municipalities often to find that kind of financing. So the green bonds have really been very important in helping to finance this green development in China. What about environmental, social, and governance, or ESG considerations in investment decision-making on the equity side? Have you seen growth in that approach to investing in China? We have seen growth in that, but it's still pretty small. I think in China, there's a long way to go. It's a testing ground. And the China, as I said, Xi Jinping has announced a very ambitious agenda on green finance. They continue to issue regulations that promote this kind of activity, but we haven't seen some of the financing vehicles created yet to cover the costs of this kind of financing. So I would say we've seen a lot of progress on the policy agenda for green finance, but not as much in the financial infrastructure. And what role does the social side of sustainability play in this, like human rights? A lot of companies that do business in China have extensive programs around managing sustainability in those supply chains. Is that issue taking hold and a part of it, or is is the focus largely on the green aspects of sustainability? One of the really important roles that foreign firms have played in China is bringing a lot of their own standards to play in China. And I, I would point to Walmart and Apple as two real leaders in this. Already, Apple has announced that they are relying on renewable energy to cover the energy requirements of their plants and their shops. And now they're moving to require that all their suppliers do the same. They're also looking at green packaging in their supply chain. Walmart has been following um, a very similar path. And not only for themselves, but providing uh, capacity building for other companies who want to do the same. So I think as a catalyst, the foreign firms, particularly some of the American firms, have played a very important role in that in China. With the state-owned enterprises, we have seen that the Chinese government has required them to start to take steps, but they've been very slow to move. Part of it is as the economy has slowed down, some of them are making choices between putting the upfront cost behind transforming themselves into a green company versus continuing to do business as normal as their revenues are are shrinking. So that's been very difficult in this last year. And and we're starting to see some concerns about, has there been some slippage in the dedication to moving forward on an environmentally sound path as the economy slows? I would say that 
the other aspect of this that has been driving a lot of change is the political imperative that I mentioned earlier, with a lot of the protests coming from the fact that Chinese people are very concerned about the air that they breathe and the food that they eat that's been grown in polluted soil, that that has put a lot of pressure on the Chinese government to try and make sure that they've improved. We've seen a lot of improvement, actually, in, in talking. I was in Beijing not so long ago and, and listening to a number of people talking about how much better the air quality is now and how encouraged they are that they're starting to see progress on that. But the air quality is only one small aspect. The biggest challenge is clean water and clean soil. The air quality obviously was the most visible, but these other issues are very difficult to address. But looking at it from a private sector angle, it provides great business opportunities is the Chinese have started to encourage the opening of the environmental goods and services market in China. Goldman Sachs did a study and estimated that it could be a $1 trillion opportunity for the private sector. And so we think that for American companies in this space, they should be looking at China as an opportunity to bring their environmental goods and services into play. So just as a final thought, what trends do you see as being most important for global investors and and businesses to be aware of when it comes to sustainability in China? I think one of the key issues to watch is this definition of green. And if they can come up with one that is internationally acceptable, as well as creating the financial instruments necessary then to be investing in some of these sectors, it presents huge opportunities. Just in the private equity space alone, When we started the U.S.-China Green Fund, it was the first major green fund to be established in China. It was about two years ago. Now there are 500 private equity funds focused on green. So the growth is huge. The key is just, as an investor, making sure that you do your homework. Thank you very much to Deborah Lair for her expert insights on the intersection between China's economic development and environmental policies. Next, we'll hear from Dan Creter. Dan is a director in BMO's Fixed Income Strategy Group. He has a special interest and focus on sustainable fixed income investments and leads the group's research in the green bond space. I wanted to follow up with Dan after our last conversation in episode one and to get some of his insights on green bonds and the green bond taxonomy in China and beyond. Hi, Dan, and welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. Dan, we heard from Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute about sustainable finance developments in China. And over the last number of years, it seems that China has really become a fairly formidable player in the green bond space, although they have their own unique approach to it. What's your sense of the impact that China has had on the green bond market globally? Well, you know, from a high level, I'd say that it's had a mixed impact. But first, I'll start with the positives. Like, China at one time in 2017 was the largest green bond issuer in the world in terms of jurisdiction of green bonds. They have a huge domestic need. Some of the pollution factors in China have been highlighted over the past few years. So both from a financial as well as a domestic environmental standpoint, China has a lot to gain by being at the forefront of the green bond market. And I think they recognize that, which is part of the reason why they were the first country in the world to institute an official green bond taxonomy and have made many firsts, actually, in terms of the green bond market that we'll talk about more during this interview. But at the same time, there are a few downsides to to China's presence in the green bond market that makes it sort of stand apart from the rest of the world. For one thing, its taxonomy, as we said, was the first in the world, but it's not 
very closely aligned with the rest of the world. Kind of the, the, the most talked about example of this is China's inclusion of clean coal technology as an approved use of proceeds for a green bond in China. Other international standards do not include coal. They feel that it doesn't properly drive money towards more sustainable or environmentally beneficial projects. In the long run, we should be looking to get off of coal, not use green bond proceeds to invest in maybe slightly better for the environment coal projects. In addition, you have some slight differences in, in terms of disclosure expectations or requirements between China and the international community. More and more international borrowers are moving towards disclosing not only you know, the types of projects that green bond proceeds go to support, as well as their use of proceeds and things like that, which China has all of, but also disclosing quantitative data for what type of environmental benefit are these projects actually delivering? That's not a requirement in China. Although it's encouraged, it's not a requirement, and, and many green bond disclosures don't have that. And then some more nitty-gritty stuff like disclosure of how unallocated resources from green bond proceeds are invested and things of that nature. There's just a, a bit of a divergence between China's standards and the rest of the world. And then finally, and this is more high-level as well, there is some concern over just the stringency or even accuracy of some of the green bond reports that come out of China, just given China is somewhat notorious in the financial markets for not always having the most reliable information coming from official sources. And that has to be a concern as well. So there are some concerns, but at the same time, a lot of reasons for enthusiasm given China's engagement of the green bond market and the, and the precedent it's set really for, for some of the rest of the countries in the world. Some steps being taken by Western countries now were taken by China in 2015. So a lot of reasons for hope and enthusiasm, but also some concerns that results in sort of a, a mixed impact of China on the green bond market, I would say. Do you see the role of China in the green bond market changing in the coming years, particularly in light of you know, the dynamics that are changing in terms of China's role in international trade? To be honest, I, I, I don't see much of a, a, of a direct impact of the trade war on the green bond market. I think those are really sort of two independent factors that China's dealing with. And I, I don't see a big transmission from one to the other. In terms of how China's role in the green bond market could change in the coming years, I think that they're going to continue to grow the green bond market domestically and get more and more new borrowers online. But I think the way that China can truly grow the market and grow its presence in the international green bond market is to more closely align their standards with the international community. I, I touched on this in the last question, but just to put some numbers on it, the Climate Bonds Initiative, who works very closely with China in the development of China's green bond market, estimated that in 2017, 38% of Chinese green bond issuance failed to meet international standards. In 2018, that figure fell to 26%. So we are seeing movement in the right direction. But even still, a, a full quarter of Chinese green bond issuance does not meet international standards. So I think more close alignment between China and the rest of the world is the most important thing for the growth and international recognition of China's green bond market. And there are steps being made 
in that direction. In March, Reuters had a report out that China was considering a new set of guidelines or a new taxonomy for the domestic market that removed clean coal technology from the list of approved green bond use of proceeds. Now, we haven't seen that yet. The Reuters report mentioned that it could come as early as the end of the month, and that was four months ago. But if that thought process is out there, hopefully it will come at some point in the future, and we can see China sort of join the rest of the world instead of the international green bond market growing and China's green bond market growing, but just sort of independent from each other. And you've mentioned this already, the the green taxonomy that China developed. What influence do you think that taxonomy has had or will have on other taxonomies being developed recently, the work done in Europe, in Canada, and elsewhere? I think China's taxonomy and some of its other initiatives it's put forth has a very important impact on what's being developed in, in the Western countries. I mean, like we said, China put this in years ago, and they've really set the precedent for a few different things. They had the first taxonomy. They were the first to license and vet external assurance providers and verifiers of green bond frameworks. So from a format perspective, I think China's taxonomy, it can be very useful for other countries putting together a taxonomy. Sort of a China's green bond, they call it their endorsed catalog of green bond proceeds. It, it looks very similar to proposals we've gotten for Europe's EU taxonomy on green bonds that shows you know, an explicit list of what activities should be considered sustainable or green. And then moving forward into some of the regulation, China's regulation of green bond assurance providers, China's disclosure requirements. Like they've, they've really set a strong precedent for how a framework should be constructed. The drawback to it is I think some of the, some of the things included in that format, the, the, some of the stringency of China's green bond taxonomy, not up to par with the rest of the world. So I think some of the things actually included in the taxonomy and other regulatory initiatives will not serve as much of a precedent, but in terms of format and structure, I think it's an extremely beneficial precedent for the rest of the world. Last time you were on the podcast, Dan, we talked about the EU's action plan for sustainable finance and the forthcoming at that time technical reports, which have since been released, including one on a green taxonomy and on other topics like benchmarking. What is your take on the green taxonomy report in particular and the impact that that taxonomy could have on the green bond market? Well, I mean, first impression of the taxonomy report was that it was truly incredible. The, the amount of detail and depth they've gone into, not just from the green bond market as a whole, but in each specific activity that they analyzed and describe as contributing meaningfully to climate change mitigation or adaptation. They, they've gone into an incredible amount of detail, over, over 400 pages, to talk about what thresholds should be considered sustainable, what activities should be considered sustainable. It's, it's a truly incredible document and one that I think will, either in the short term or long term, set a new market standard that eventually all other standards will conform to. There is yet to be a taxonomy or anything like a taxonomy that goes to the level of depth and detail that the EU taxonomy report does. So long term, I think that it represents a true watershed moment for sustainable finance, both in terms of attracting more investors into the space, increasing awareness of it, and actually maybe moving the needle in terms of helping the world avoid the two degrees raise in temperature that is the goal of the Paris Climate Accord. But short term, the EU taxonomy, I think, could have a bit of a detrimental impact on green bond supply. 
And to demonstrate why, there was a report out of Cicero. Cicero is the largest green bond auditor or assurance provider in the market today and the most well-known. They did a study on the green frameworks that they have audited, which again, more than any other auditor in the world. And they estimated that two-thirds out of the green bond frameworks that they've audited would not comply with the EU taxonomy as it's currently defined. So it's sort of the downside to how much detail the EU went into here is that issuers might not be ready yet to comply with, with the stringent requirements of the EU taxonomy. But now that it's out there and we think investors will quickly adjust their expectations for issuers to to match or closely match what's included in the EU taxonomy, we would expect at least some hesitance on the part of some borrowers to issue a green bond that cannot yet demonstrate it fully complies with EU's taxonomy. And it's going to take a sufficient amount of time and effort to get existing green bond frameworks in compliance with what the EU has proposed. And we think that that work will be undertaken. It's probably being worked on right now, but it's going to take some time. And in in that meantime, we could see issuance fall a little bit here in the second half of the year and potentially into the first half of 2020. And now that technical document was was a proposal, as I understand it. What are the next steps in terms of the EU actually effectuating these recommendations? It was a proposal, and the next step is for the taxonomy to be approved by European Parliament. Now, that could take some time. We just got a new European Parliament in place that might have some other issues to deal with. I mean, the least of which being Brexit, which could be another big thing that the European Parliament will have to tackle in the fall months. But the next step is for the European Parliament to approve it. I would not expect that to happen in 2019 because, like we said, new Parliament has other things to deal with. And there has been at least some pushback on the taxonomy and certain technical aspects of the taxonomy from some European countries. So this is not likely going to be approved until 2020 at the earliest, but there is sufficient momentum in the European markets to, to think that this will eventually get, get pushed across. It's ironing out a few details, ironing out you know, how exactly the taxonomy is going to be used and how quickly it will be used in the European financial system. Is your sense, though, that even before it becomes law, it will still have an effect on market activities? That is precisely my thought. I think the thought is that this will eventually become law. And so we have to start adjusting our expectations for green bond issuance to these standards set forth now, whether or not it's law yet. And in your view, would that apply to European issuances or could it apply more globally? I would think it could apply more globally. I mean, certainly to European borrowers, but the Europe market already accounts for half of green bond supply. The one country it likely doesn't apply to is China. And if China's 10 or 15% of market issuance, that that probably has no impact on Chinese green bond issuance. But outside of China, Europe is the leader. They issue the most. And the rest of the world sort of looks to Europe. So if you have a company from the U.S. or from Canada or from Australia that's looking to issue and and they see, even though they're not in Europe, this is the future of the green bond market. Now, it might have slightly less impact on some of those countries we discussed, but I still think it has at least some impact. And in Europe, certainly a a much larger one. Pivoting to Canada, the expert panel on sustainable finance in Canada released its recommendations in June of 2019. In your view, what were the most interesting recommendations that came out of that report? 
Well, the Canadian report was very interesting, and by far the most interesting things I saw in the report was the proposal for tax-related incentives to either issue or invest in a green bond proposed by the Canadian expert group. China has proposed something similar in the past, offering tax incentives to issuers for issuing green bonds. But Canada is the first country I've yet seen outside of China to propose such powerful proposals. And 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 this is the type of thing that could really result in an explosion of green bond supply. And not just that, the type of thing that can actually answer the additionality question that is currently a tough one to answer for green bond market participants. I'll take a step back and just in case anyone's unfamiliar with what I mean by the term additionality. There's a concern out there that green bonds now go to finance projects that would have been undertaken anyways. It's just an issuer looks at its its list of assets or projects and decides, oh, look, these would qualify for a green bond, so let's issue a green bond. There's not yet a financial incentive for a company to say, well, we're going to save money if we issue a green bond and we can we can take those savings and then invest in a maybe a lower return project, but the lower return is offset by our cost savings. So the argument is it's hard to prove at this point that green bonds are actually causing new investment into new projects that would be considered sustainable. But with the right amount of tax incentives, either at the issuer or the investor level, companies would actually then save money by issuing green bonds, which then incentivizes them to find projects that would be considered eligible for green bond proceeds, and it actually drives new investment dollars to the sustainable market. So these types of tax incentives are extremely powerful for both the green bond market and for the world's chances of avoiding the the more dire effects of climate change. And Canada was the first country to propose them. Now, proposal is a long way from actual implementation. We'll see if the Canadian government actually pursues this as a possibility. But if it does, I think it sends an extremely strong signal to the market, one that other countries are likely to to replicate and could be perhaps one of the most important developments in the green bond market so far. So I'll be closely monitoring any implementation of those proposals made in Canada's expert finance panel group. Very interesting. Another recommendation that has spawned some activity in Canada is around the creation of a made-in-Canada taxonomy, which is sort of responding to or coinciding with the European taxonomy and is intended, I think, to be focused on Canada's natural resource sector and the greening of those industries within Canada and identifying how that activity can be consistent with global green taxonomies. What was your take on that recommendation and and how it interplays with what we've already talked about with the EU taxonomy, China, Chinese taxonomy, and other types of similar activities? Yeah, it's it's very interesting because Canada is in a bit of a unique spot with implementing a growing plan on on sustainability. China's economy, or at least parts of China's economy, are very resource-centric, and China is an exporter of oil, and oil makes up a large part of GDP in certain provinces in, in Canada. So reconciling fossil fuel production alongside, you know, trying to build out a sustainable financial system is a bit delicate. So in terms of building a taxonomy, 
Canada maybe here is recognizing that there's going to be some more unique challenges for Canada given its natural resources. So, you know, at first blush, you think, well, what's the point of a Canadian taxonomy if Europe has already gone to such lengths and has already created a taxonomy that seems like it could be applicable for use around the world? Maybe Canada should just use that. But there is some unique circumstances given Canada's resource-rich economy. And so there might have to be some deviations between a Canadian green bond taxonomy or sustainable taxonomy and that of Europe's. From a global perspective, you know, that risks coming off the way China's taxonomy did a little bit, right? China has clean coal in their taxonomy, and it's somewhat viewed skeptically around the world. I don't know if Canada's going to do anything like that. You know, we have we'd have to see a lot more detail on what a Canadian taxonomy would look like. But anything that would set Canadian taxonomy apart from Europe would likely be driven there. And then the question becomes, well, would Canadian green bonds be viewed as quote unquote green as other countries? And and again, who knows if this would actually come to pass. But I I think Handling that delicacy is likely the motivation here instead of just simply implementing what Europe has already put together. So we'd have to see, you know, details on how a Canadian taxonomy would work and the types of eligible projects and things of that nature to ensure that Canadian green bonds were on the same stringency level as what's being put forth in Europe. There's been talk about creating a new category of sustainable bond of the transition bond, which in my understanding would be to take industries or activities within industries that might not normally meet the requirements of a green taxonomy, but if they have a significant positive impact in reducing emissions, you know, greening of of industries that wouldn't traditionally be viewed as falling within a green bond taxonomy, that that activity could be included for the purposes of a so-called transition bond. What's your take on this idea of transition bond, where it's going to go, and and how the market's reacting to it? Yeah, you're definitely right on that, Michael. And transition is becoming a more discussed topic, I think, in the green bond market, just on the recognition that we're not going to be able to suddenly switch over to 100% renewable forms of energy. You know, just focusing on the energy sector here, it's not going to happen. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be making our best efforts to. It shouldn't be, well, there's no way we can develop a 100% solar grid right now. So why even bother trying? We'll just keep going with coal. And transition is one of the things that was highlighted in the EU taxonomy. For example, they put out thresholds of, of an activity that should be considered sustainable. So I'll use the example that we used in, in our most recent publication, which is on geothermal energy production. They looked at best practices from around the world and looked at how much greenhouse gases should be emitted by a geothermal energy production project. And over time, the acceptable amount of greenhouse gases falls. But right now, the threshold is set higher than maybe European authorities would ultimately like it to see it settle in at. But in recognition of the transition that we need to encourage, it's set a bit higher and then it steps down until it reaches zero by 2050. And the goal there is to let transition type projects be considered sustainable in the short term with the long-term goal of reaching zero carbon emission. So that's one methodology of doing it. Another one, what you talked about, Michael, straight up transition bonds, and you mentioned the greenification of some other sectors. So let's use clean coal here because clean coal is a good example. Yes. Is there more environmentally beneficial ways to burn coal 
yeah, there are there are better ways to do it. But should we be encouraging new coal burning plants? You know, the most sustainable people would probably say no. So a, a transition bond that would say go to finance a new coal fired plant just with cleaner technology might not be the right message we want to send. Instead, I think the way that that Europe has done it by allowing a higher threshold of greenhouse gas emission that's then steps down over time, hopefully alongside improving technology, might be the way to go. I, I don't think transition bonds, ultimately, who are they for? Traditional bond market buyers who don't have any sustainable metrics aren't going to be interested in traditional bonds. And then I'd argue that sustainable investors likely wouldn't have a high degree of interest in transition bonds either. So the idea of a labeled transition bond, I struggle to get on board with. I think that the plan that Europe implemented where thresholds just step down over time in recognition of this transition need might be the more appropriate way to go. Last we spoke, Dan, you told us about what you were foreseeing as headwinds facing the green bond market in 2019. And in your most recent green bond reports, you've stuck by that forecast overall for the course of the year, but you've noted that the market actually was off to a pretty hot start for the first half of 2019. Can you give us an update on what you've been seeing in the market and, and where you think things will go for the rest of 2019? Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, I stuck by my initial forecast, but the rationale behind stake behind that forecast has changed. Originally, when I put out that forecast, I was concerned that the market was at a bit of an inflection point where sustainable investments in green bonds in particular might struggle to cross over from the niche category of the financial markets into the more mainstream, and that you could see these periods where growth is a bit slower. That has not been the case at all. The reason why I'm holding to that estimate now is because of that potentially negative impact on supply coming from the EU taxonomy release that could see issuance slow in the second half. But so far this year, issuance has been extremely high, growing at 60% over 2018 levels, extremely impressive. And I think it's safe to say at this point that that struggle to transition from niche to mainstream was incorrect. We're continuing to see more assets flood into sustainable investment vehicles. And I think the story of 2019 has really been more governments engaging the market. And that's true at the sovereign level, but even more importantly at the sub-sovereign level, the government agency or supranational community SSA issuance has increased significantly in 2019, and that hasn't been driven by supranationals. I mean, the supers invented the market, essentially, and have been issuing for years. So that means the additional supply is coming from government agencies and government sub-sovereigns. You're seeing more government agencies issuing the market, more than we've ever seen, a lot of new, new market entrants this year. And that's a way for a government to say, We want to be involved in the green bond market. We're not sure we want to issue a sovereign yet, or maybe we're not ready to issue a sovereign green bond yet, but our agencies certainly can. So it's an indication of of more government involvement, which ultimately at the end of the day, I think government involvement is going to be the key to the green bond market reaching its potential. If sovereigns don't engage the market, green bonds will likely, they're not going to go away ever, but they would be more likely to remain more of a niche type product. But if governments get involved, as they have, France is already the second largest issuer. And we started to see more Asian countries, non-China Asian countries with with sovereign issuance. South Korea issued their first green bond this year and more agency issuance. It's moving that direction. So I really think that The most important storyline this year has been the degree that governments have issued, and it should continue to move in that direction, 
even if we're going to get a bit of a speed bump here over the second half of the year with EU taxonomy, I think things are aligning now to really see the market explode in the years ahead, just maybe not the months ahead. Thanks to Dan, as always, for speaking with us. Make sure you go back and listen to episode one of Sustainability Leaders to learn even more about green bonds and Dan's views of the market. We'll be watching to see what develops from China's environmental initiatives and the EU's action plan on sustainable finance. Thanks again to both of our guests for their inputs today. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.